You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Seth, I can't believe you have the original movie poster for Forbidden Planet. Yep, the original poster, and it's signed by... I know, I know, 1956, Walter Pigeon, Anne Francis, and you have an original autograph. That's incredible. Yeah, I remember the day it was signed in 1950. Let's go find it, because if we find it, we can sell it, it on eBay. What? No, do you know how much something like that is worth? Well, if you think it's worth something, I mean, let me find the right key here. So this is your storage locker? Yeah, well, when I moved to Europe, I, I couldn't take this stuff with me or store it anywhere. No room in that attic, basement, or garage? Well, it's mainly stuff from growing up in Virginia, plus some grad school and astronomy stuff. Anyway, which key this is? Oh, this lock's a little rusted. It's been a while. Whoa! Kind of dusty in here. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, and welcome to Are We Alone? As we hunt through this stuff in my storage locker. And who knows what we're going to find in here. Hey, here's the compressor for my pneumatic wrench. I've been looking for that. I wonder where it's gone. Seth, now where do you think this movie poster is? Well, it's going to be in a tube, I think. I mean, let's get these boxes out of the way. And you know, maybe it's back behind there. What's this? Oh, yeah, you know, well, it's a timing light. What's that? Well, you know, in the old days, it's the way you would you know, set the ignition in your car to make sure the spark plugs fired at the right time. That's all. I mean, I don't use it anymore. Okay, let's see this box over here. Ooh. Hey, hey. So you have some records. Ooh, you have some records here. Yeah, my old 45 collection. I, I think I have every record Buddy Holly ever made. I mean, not everyone that was pressed, of course. But no, I understand. Hey, here's my Fuzzy Dice collection. So this movie, Forbidden Planet, now... I know who's in it, but I haven't actually seen it. What's what's it about? It's not a silent film, is it? Uh, 56, Molly, 56. That's, a, uh, what, almost three decades after the invention of sound film, but thank you. No, it was sci-fi. And it takes place in the 23rd century, as they always do. These guys go to a planet around the nearby star Altair. It, see, they, they actually find it. They, they find a planet around Altair where the colony is, but it had gone silent. Kind of what happened in southern Greenland, you know, in the 14th century. Some, you know, Norwegian colony, they, they didn't hear from them. What, they disappeared? Well, yeah, they still don't know what happened to them. But in any case, in the film, they go and investigate around Altair. Almost all the colonists are gone except for this Dr. Morbius guy and his daughter, played by Anne Francis. Beautiful, pretty standard sci-fi stuff, of course. Seth, can you turn on a light in here so I can see exactly what it is that I'm, ooh, what I'm stepping on? Yeah. Move this out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, this light switch over here. I'll get that. Now... The, the star, Altair, is that a real star? Yeah, it sure is. It's uh, about twice the size of the sun. It's a big one. Where is it? And does it have any planets? Well, it's about uh, 16 or 17 light years away, I think. And, well, nobody's found any planets. I mean, the way they find planets around other stars is they look for any wobble that the star is making, any dance that it's doing because of the presence of a planet. You mean and because of the gravitational pull? Right. They're in orbit around one another, so they both move a little bit, and it's easier to find the movement of the star. But they haven't looked at Altair. It's the wrong kind of star to do that. Now, one of the top planet hunters is Jeff Marcy. He's at the University of California at Berkeley, and he points out that astronomers have found more than 300 planets using this wobble method. There are 
something like 350 extrasolar planets now known and counting, and about 50 of them were found by a different method, the, the so-called transit method, in which people monitor the sky for stars that dim as planets block some of the starlight. And a handful of the planets have been found by yet another technique called microlensing, where the starlight bends around a planet by the gravity of the planet. And so uh, with those about 55 exoplanets aside, the remaining 300 exoplanets have been found by, indeed, this Doppler wobble technique that my team and the Swiss team and a few other teams have been using successfully for uh, about 12 years now. Could you estimate about how many of those uh, discovered uh, 300 have your name on the papers? About half. About a half of them. About 150 my team has been involved with. I think that many people have the feeling that most of these planets are huge and toasty, you know, so-called hot Jupiters in tight orbits around their suns. Is that an accurate portrayal today? It is a misconception that always surprises me. In fact, of the extrasolar planets known today, about half of them orbit beyond one AU, in other words, one Earth-Sun distance. So about half of the known planets around other stars orbit farther from their star than the Earth does from the Sun. And, of course, to be sure, what is remarkable is that some of the extrasolar planets do orbit very close to their host star. They generate a lot of publicity because they're so close that they heat up and shine in the infrared. And so the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope can detect some of that infrared light. So the close-in Jupiters get a little more airtime than their numbers really deserve. What's the smallest planet you can find today uh, using this wobble technique? Well, we've between the Swiss team and our team, we have a handful of planets that have masses around five Earth masses. We actually only measure the minimum mass, but there are now enough of them around five, six, seven Earth masses that I suspect a few of them really are that low mass. And indeed, you can only find those very low mass planets, five Earth masses, if they luckily orbit close to the star, because only that proximity will allow the gravitational tug of the planet on the star to be large enough that we see the star respond. So we can find planets of a few Earth masses, but only if they orbit close. Where do you do most of your observing? What telescope do you use? I use the Keck telescope in Hawaii, Keck 1 to be precise. So my team gets oh, something like 35 nights a year on the Keck 1 telescope to measure Doppler shifts to hunt for planets, but my team is fairly extensive, and we use the Lick Observatory Telescope in Northern California, led mostly by Deborah Fisher, who's the one who really makes the observations, does most of the work. Uh, and then we use other telescopes like Subaru, the Japanese Telescope, and the Magellan Telescope in Chile, and so on. So we have a, a suite of telescopes, but the, the Mighty Keck and the Lick Observatory Telescope are the, the two workhorses. Do you actually go to the mountain? Do you go to Hawaii and use the telescope, or do you do this all remotely? Amazingly, we never go to the telescope anymore. It's, it's an astonishing thing. Here at Berkeley, we have a remote 
operations station in which we have about 10 computer monitors, about five different computers. We have a real-time audio-visual contact with the summit of Mauna Kea at 14,000 feet. But we just sit here in Berkeley, and we literally run all of the computers there at Mauna Kea from our computers here at Berkeley, obviously using the Internet. In fact, we have a duplicated backup Internet system. In fact, by the way, just kind of this is an aside, but last night for the first time in a year of doing this, the internet went down and the backup internet line kicked in and within three minutes we were back using the telescope again. So we have a really nice system by which we don't have to go and work in the thin atmosphere at 14,000 feet on top of Mauna Kea. Yeah, miss the luau's too. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, how much further can this uh, technique be pushed? I mean, Kepler is surveying the skies, hunting for the small rocky worlds that we find so interesting. Can the wobble method continue to compete? Well, the wobble method has fantastic ways of contributing to the field of exoplanets. What it can't do is find Earth-sized planets, the mass and radius of the Earth, orbiting at distances similar to the Earth's distance from the Sun. And, of course, that's crucial the reason, of course, we're hampered with the Doppler wobble technique is that the Earth is only one three hundred thousandth of the mass of the Sun. So as the Earth orbits the Sun, the Sun barely moves in response. Indeed, it moves a speed of 10 centimeters per second. And we just can't measure that with our Doppler radar guns here on the Earth. So we can't find Earths. We can't find bona fide habitable Earths that have the same size and temperature that our own Earth has. Finally, Jeff, for a dozen or more years now, extrasolar planets have been your day job, or maybe I should say your night job. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is this what you had in mind when you started out in astronomy? I never imagined anything like this. You know, the brief biography of me is I was a struggling student at UCLA, got B's, not so many A's in my physics classes, and I applied to graduate school and somehow squeaked by. They let me in, and, and then I squeaked by to get a Ph.D., and, and I was working on magnetic fields on stars. Nothing to do with planets in the 1980s. I just worked on trying to measure the magnetism of other stars, and only out of desperation when I thought my career was almost over did I turn to a crazy, wild idea of trying to find planets. So I never imagined I would be here talking about even one planet discovered around another star, never mind 350. I take it it's still exciting. It's uh, a little too exciting, actually. My life is pretty overwhelmed. The, the planets have eaten me alive, that's for sure. Okay. Jeff Marcy, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. Now, astronomer Jeff Marcy is at the University of California, Berkeley, where he studies extrasolar planets. While we're here, rummaging through the storage locker that hasn't seen light or air. Well, since Magellan's voyage, or when I left for grad school, I can't remember which came first. You know, Seth, it's, it's kind of interesting that Jeff Marcy wasn't even intending to look for planets when he was in school. It was just 
what did he say, a desperate, crazy move of his to go hunting for these things? Well, that's true, Molly, but the whole field of planetary discovery is covered in accident and serendipity. Even even the discovery of Neptune had, you know, accident as part of the scenario. There were some Canadians that were looking for planets around other stars, you know, 10 years before Jeff Marcy and, and the guys in Switzerland who found those planets. The problem was that they didn't expect that a planet could go around a star in only a few days. So, you know, their experiments weren't successful, and it was only because they, they had these preconceived notions. So what is the lesson here for SETI? I mean, as you find more planets revolving around stars, extrasolar planets, what does it suggest for the search for extraterrestrial life? Well, of course, finding planets around other stars that are sort of like the Earth, something that Kepler, you know, the Kepler mission might do, that, of course, would be very interesting because that would tell us whether there are other worlds out there that might support life. But, you know, just because you find a lot of them doesn't mean that any of them have intelligent life. But even if some of those planets aren't suitable for intelligent life, they might be suitable for microbial life. Yeah, they could be, and that might be easier to find. Just look for some gases in the atmosphere like methane and oxygen. There's more to discover coming up on Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking Species on Any World. Welcome back to Are We Alone? as we discover a hodgepodge of things here in my storage locker. Could use a window in here. But then people might break in while And I... steal... You know, that what? movie poster must be here somewhere. Oh, hey, look. My box of fossils. Is that what these are? Let's see. Well, what sort of fossils? Well, those, those are bivalves. Oh, oysters and clams. Yeah, but Ooh, these are uh, the ancestors of oysters and clams. These, these things are about 400 million years old. So you don't have any dino fossils here? No, but dino fossils aren't so rare anymore. I mean, other people are finding them, just not in a storage locker. I know. They unearthed that new species of dinosaur. It wasn't all that long ago. A cousin of T-Rex, and they found it in the Gobi Desert. So apparently these tyrannosaurids, or these tyrant lizards, were more diverse than they thought. This one was slimmer than T-Rex, and they call it the ballerina dinosaur. Yeah, I know. Wasn't that interesting? Well, what they found was an eight-horned, with two of the horns sticking out of its cheek, carnivore that lived in the Cretaceous, Alioramus Altai, found in, as he said, the Gobi Desert in Asia. One of the paleontologists who discovered it was Steve Brusate from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. It's a very close cousin of T-Rex. It's one of the closest cousins of T-Rex, but in many ways, it's very different from T-Rex. Well, in what ways is it different? It's smaller, I suppose. Yeah, so for starters, it's half the size of T-Rex. Its skeleton is a lot slimmer, a lot skinnier, a lot weaker, and its skull is not this deep, robust, biting machine like the skull of T-Rex, but is actually very long-snouted like the skull of a crocodile. It has very thin teeth, very weak jaw muscles, so quite different from his close cousin. Well, this uh, difference, this this greater delicacy, if you will, of, of this new dinosaur, is that why it's called a ballerina? I mean, you know, or, or does it just walk around on its toes? Well, yes, we, uh, <laughs> we found it fossilized with the tutu and everything. Now, you know, T-Rex is the brute of dinosaurs. You know, everybody knows T-Rex. Everybody has a picture of T-Rex in their head as this 40-foot-long, 5-ton brute force monster. And even though this guy is such a close cousin, compared to something like T-Rex, it's much slimmer, it's much smaller, it's much faster. It probably relied more on speed and stealth and finesse when it came to hunting, not so much on raw strength. So really, compared to the sumo wrestler T-Rex, it really was quite uh, like a ballerina. Okay, so it couldn't win by brute force, but but it was a carnivore. So maybe you could describe, you know, what the scene might have been like, I don't know, 100 million years ago when this guy's stalking through the forest trying to get dinner. How, how would it go about getting dinner? 
Yeah, so Elie Ramus lived about uh, 65 million years ago in Mongolia. Of course, now Mongolia is very dry, Gobi Desert, very hot. Back then, during the last part of the Cretaceous, it was one of the warmest periods in Earth's history, one of the wettest periods in Earth's history. And Elie Ramus lived right alongside another tyrannosaur called Tarbosaurus, which basically looked just like T-Rex, was the same size as T-Rex, had the same skull shape and same body type as T-Rex. So the differences between Tarbosaurus and Aliramus probably allowed them to coexist in the same spot. Uh, so they weren't competing for the same prey, just like lions and, and cheetahs are two types of cats that coexist. So Tarbosaurus was probably taking down big prey using its strong bite forces and its big skull, whereas Aliramus was probably going after smaller animals, maybe juvenile animals, but certainly not the biggest prey. Okay, now it, it had horns. It and, did. Well, I don't quite get that. I mean, if this is a carnivore, why does it need that sort of defense? Well, horns are an interesting feature. You know, you think about animals that are around today that have horns, you know, rhinos and bulls and sheep and big horns and these sorts of things. And most of the time, horns are not actually used for defense. And most of the time, horns are not actually used for taking down prey, but instead, horns are usually display features that are oftentimes used to attract mates, to scare off rivals, just to identify a species. Just like us as humans, we might give ourselves, you know, a certain haircut or a certain, you know, type of facial hair or something just to identify us. So that's what horns are usually used for. So even though this guy was a big predator and it probably didn't have much to fear from other dinosaurs, its horns were probably useful for attracting mates and telling it apart from other uh, carnivores. Well, okay, another dinosaur. Now, you know, uh, I don't mean to sound blasé, but, you know, I might say, well, so what? I mean, how does this uh, improve our understanding of, uh, you know, the dino lifestyle or how dinos existed or what was good and bad about the dinosaurs? Yeah, well, you know, nowadays there's so much paleontological exploration out there that a new dinosaur is described uh, once every uh, couple of weeks. So we have a lot of new dinosaurs coming out. Some are more interesting than others. For us, Aliramus is quite interesting because it is such a close cousin of certainly what's the most familiar dinosaur, T-Rex, yet it's very different. It's the first sign that tyrannosaurs were not all just big brute strength predators, but there was actually quite a lot of diversity in the group. So that was very unexpected. And the other really important thing to scientists such as myself is that this new skeleton, it's not just a couple of bones, a couple of eroded bones, as it is often the case with new dinosaur fossils. The skull is essentially complete. It's immaculately preserved. We can see features of the brain, features of the you know, sense organs, features of the nasal sinuses, and other things that are very rarely preserved in fossils. So the fossil itself can tell us a lot of things about anatomy that are hard to get from most fossils. Uh, one thing that always impresses me about you know, artists' renditions of these dinos, and you see them on the walls of museums all the time, is you know, what the skin looked like, uh, whether it was mottled or it had stripes or whether it was pink or yellow or dull brown as it usually is. But do we really know anything about what the skin of these dinosaurs looked like? We don't know much. There's a decent number of fossils that actually preserve skin. These are the so-called mummy dinosaurs. So we, we know 
something about the shape of the scales. Of course, we know the skin was scaly in, in, in a lot of dinosaurs. We don't quite know the colors, but these dinosaurs where scales are known from are mostly plant-eating dinosaurs. And when it comes to the carnivorous dinosaurs, it's likely that most of these guys were actually covered in feathers. And the close relationship between birds and dinosaurs is something that's very well established. It's been known for a long time that birds evolved from dinosaurs. And over the past couple of decades, a number of exceptional specimens from China have come to light. And these are actual theropod dinosaurs, carnivorous dinosaurs, covered in a wide variety of feathers, including feathers that are basically identical to the shape and the structure of those of living birds. We don't quite know the color. Maybe we will someday, but we do know that a lot of these things were covered in feathers, and close relatives of Alliramus from China are known with feathers. So T-Rex probably had feathers, too. I think you're going to have to replace all those uh, artists' renditions on the walls of the American Museum of Natural History because I don't remember any feathers on those dinosaurs. No doubt. I mean, the, the exhibit halls here, one of the great tragedies, as wonderful as the exhibits are, they were redone about 15 years ago, and about two years after they were redone, the first feathered dinosaurs were found. So next time the museum does a big makeover, that's going to have to be one of the first things to change. Lizards of a feather flock together. You know, the dino finds keep coming, Steve. Their big dino prints have been found in France, uh, made by sauropods. As you say, there are new dinosaurs all the time. But I, I wonder... The dinosaurs were around for a long period of time. Does this suggest that this was kind of a, an evolutionary dead end? I mean, Stanislaw Lem in a book suggested that insects just keep mutating, making more different kinds of insects. There's zillions of insects because, you know, they couldn't go anywhere, evolutionarily speaking. They had these exoskeletons, whatever. Was, were the dinos kind of a dead end design? Uh, if they hadn't been wiped out, that would have, we would just would have had dinos forever? Well... We do have 9,000 living species of dinosaurs today, and those are birds. And birds are direct descendants of dinosaurs, so they're dinosaurs as much as a lion is a cat or as much as a hamster is a rodent. So they are dinosaurs. They're one group of dinosaurs. Of course, a lot of the other types of dinosaurs did go extinct, the really long-neck ones, the horn and, and frilled dinosaurs like triceratops. Those dinosaurs did go extinct. But one group made it through. They're amazingly diverse today. So I would say they're about as far as you could actually get from an evolutionary dead end. They have been around for almost 250 million years now and continue to be a very important part of our living world. Well, I'll, I'll give the dinos more credit when I see them on the streets, which I guess I, I do. I, <laughs> well, you know, a question that uh, is kind of relevant to SETI and looking for life beyond Earth is what would have happened if that rock that smashed into the Yucatan 65 million years ago and wiped out a lot of the dinosaurs had missed the Earth, because it easily could have. Would some of the dinosaurs have gotten smart, in your opinion? I mean, you know, they didn't leave much literature behind as it is now. Yeah, well, you know, this is one of the great questions about evolution. It's one of the biggest questions about evolution, but also one of the most interesting questions to think about. What would happen if certain events of Earth history never occurred? What if that rock never hit? We don't know. We can play the thought experiment in our mind. We can, you know, hypothesize what would have happened. Maybe some dinosaurs would have evolved intelligence. It's hard to know, but I think what we can safely say is that the world would be very different. We probably wouldn't see mammals uh, as diverse as they are now, and you'd probably see a lot of these other types of dinosaurs, long-necked ones, etc., still around. Jurassic Park. Well, finally, Steve, uh, why do you think dinos have such tremendous appeal? I mean, why is that? 
Well, there's just something about them, you know, of course. You see it with all the movies, with, you know, you see it on the faces of the little kids. I see it every day here in the museum. I think it's just a combination of the weird shapes, the big sizes, and the fact that they're all dead. They've been dead for a long time, of course, except for birds. And they're a great mystery. There's a lot about dinosaurs that we don't know. So there's a lot of imagination that goes into what we do. The fact that most of them are dead means that they're at a safe distance. They look scary, but they're not going to come back and get us. So I think they're a perfect thing for kids, especially kids, to just think about, you know, to, to imagine. What were they like? What did they live like? It's, it's a great way for kids to become interested in science. That's probably the, the primary utility of dinosaurs in my mind. Stephen Broussat, thank you so much for talking to me about a small version of Big Animals. Okay, thank you. Steve Broussat is from the American Museum of Natural History. He's in New York. It's a great museum. Now, this storage locker could be a museum, Seth. Yeah, well, okay. Oh, look, it's a magnifying glass. Yeah, well, that's for using my brother's Oxford English Dictionary. You know, to save money, they print it in really tiny type, and that's how they get all those words in there. You need a magnifying glass to read them. What a waste, all those words, and we only use a fraction of them. Ever thought about that? In fact, I asked Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker why that was so. We use a few tens of thousands of words uh, in our daily discourse. I think if you learn a couple of thousand words, you can read just about any newspaper in any language. It's on that order. It isn't hundreds, and it's not millions. It's only a few thousand words. The Oxford English Dictionary, I think, has 300,000 or so words. And yet, if you were to take, uh, you know, our 26 letters and permute them uh, via all possible permutations, I, I reckon you could have uh, something like 300 million six-letter words. Mm -hmm. So we have a rather small number of words. Is that saying something about our brain, or is that about the environment we're trying to describe? I suspect it's neither. I don't know if anyone has documented an upper limit in terms of how many words the brain can store. Presumably there is such a limit, but I don't know if we've reached it. The rate-limiting step might just be the social networking parameters, namely a word to survive has to be alive in the minds of enough people who can use it in enough contexts that it gets passed down to the next generation and so on. There are only so many encounters that we have with other speakers, either face-to-face -face or by writing, and there are probably only so many words that can be kept alive in, in the word pool at any given time in, a, in the development of a society. The thing about the Oxford English Dictionary is that it's, a, it's like the, the Roach Motel for words. Once a word goes in, it never gets out. It's a historical archive of all the words that have ever been used in print, often enough to attract the notice of the uh, OED uh, editors. Some of them fell by the wayside simply because they weren't used by enough people, often enough, to be passed down. But nonetheless, I mean, okay, the OED, I, I hear what you're saying, it's sort of a one-way door, but it's still several orders of magnitude smaller than the number of words you could have. Yes. And what I think I hear you saying is that the reason that our vocabularies are not, you know, three orders of magnitude greater is simply that we don't live long enough to have enough social interactions to learn and deploy all those words. 
I suspect that's right. This is a speculation, I, I hasten to add. I don't know if anyone has done the measurements. But my colleague Martin Novak at Harvard has done some mathematical simulations that show that with any given population size and a given frequency of interaction, there is a maximum vocabulary size that the population can sustain. And it's a bit like epidemiology, namely there has to be some critical number of individuals who are host to some pathogen for the pathogen to survive and has to find new hosts as it kills off the old ones. Words don't kill us, but we, we are mortal. We do die. And unless uh, some younger person picks up a word from our lips or our pen, the word will die with us. Well, that's, that's interesting that it should be tied to our finite uh, tenure, as it were, on this mortal coil. Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, at the SETI Institute, of course, we look for life uh, beyond Earth, including intelligent life. And uh, you can imagine that maybe on some world around another star, people live uh, to be uh, 10,000 years old instead of, uh, you know, 100 years. And uh, so this suggests that may maybe their vocabularies are far richer than ours. Or is it the case that actually you don't need more than a few thousand words because in the end you're making sentences? And so, you know, you have a, a finite number of atoms, but you can make all the compounds you want with a very small number. That is a profound observation about the design of language. It's an intuition that, that I had expressed many years ago, and then Martin Novak developed mathematical models to prove rigorously. Namely, there is a trade-off between vocabulary size and the combinatorial power of, uh, of grammar. You don't need a single word for white wall tires if you can say white wall tires. The disadvantage of grammar is that the expressions are longer, because if you're combining elements instead of memorizing one, then you do have to go on a greater length. There, there are more syllables. Also, there's more real-time processing. You've got to compose the expression out of its words or prefixes and suffixes as you speak. The listener has to unpack them as they listen. That's the disadvantage of grammar. That's why we don't have a, a language like the ones that were designed during the Enlightenment, a perfectly logical languages where you wouldn't have to memorize words. The label for everything would be deducible from its nature. So, for example, there's a, an ingenious man named John Wilkins who designed such a, a language where he divided the universe into 40 ontological categories. Each one would then got assigned to a vowel or a consonant. Then he subdivided each one. So say for living things, there'd be beasts and fowl and fish. And then the next letter in the word would identify what kind of animal. And then the third letter would say among the, the fowl, whether it was land or water and so on, until you got to the last letter and that would pinpoint the species. Now, needless to say, this scheme did not catch on, even though, as you say, it circumvents the uh, limits of memorization and social diffusion. For one thing, because it requires so much uh, cogitation, it's basically have to play a game of 20 questions every time you choose or understand a word. Also, probably because the universe, as we experience it, does not fill out the whole matrix of rows and columns of all of these features. I and mean, we don't have any you know, fish with white wall tires. And, and, and so a system that allows you to define a word for that is really more expressive power than, than we need. Objects as we encounter them are kind of sprinkled sparsely through the space of logical possibilities. And so we can afford to give an arbitrary label to each one. So that's the trade-off. And I've argued that the design of human languages, and presumably the design of any language that we would find in extraterrestrial, would represent some compromise between the advantages and disadvantages of, on the one hand, memorizing symbols, and on the other hand, combining them through grammar.
So Molly, Steven Pinker was talking about that example of John Wilkins' language in which the word would contain all the information you would need to understand it. For example, the word banana. You might call it FFYTC, which would stand for food, fruit, yellow, tropical, and C for Cavendish, the species. But you can't pronounce that. No, it sounds more like... I don't know how you'd pronounce that. Yeah, it sounds like some sound you'd make when you spit out food, maybe when babies spit out bananas. So not a very practical way for using language. Well, no, it wasn't practical. It was it was logical, but it turns out it was just easier to memorize a whole bunch of words like the word for banana. <laughs> Even though a lot of those words go unused. Hey, Seth, that corner, I don't think we've searched that. And there's some tubes there. Okay, well, let's make our way over there. Just don't trip on this stuff, Molly. I mean, <laughs> Who knows what else we'll find in Seth's storage locker on Are We Alone? Welcome back to Are We Alone? We're rummaging around in Seth's locker, his storage locker. We're looking for a poster. This is an autographed poster of Forbidden Planet, the yep. movie Forbidden Planet. Well, you know, what's interesting about this planet, Molly, is that it could spawn life, intelligent life. Uh, of course, the human colonists uh, arrived there later, but before that were the Krell, an alien race. But that's a persistent question in archaeology, isn't it, if we can apply archaeology to uh, Forbidden Planet? Who were the first people on the scene, and what are they like? In the case of Forbidden Planet, it was the Krell. Right. Well, of course, that's science fiction. But actually, there, you know, there's a question. For the Americas, there's a question about who were the first people on the continent. I mean, the usual thought is that these were people coming from Siberia across the land bridge that existed at the Bering Strait during the last Ice Age 13,500 years ago. That's the conventional wisdom. But Texas archaeologist Mike Collins thinks the Americas were populated two ways, from Asia in the West, but also from ancient Europeans in the East. Well, that's a controversial viewpoint, but he says the artifacts his teams have found at the Galt site in central Texas supports his case. And the cicadas were in full voice when I talked to him. Mike, we're here at the uh, what's called the Galt site. We're about an hour's drive north of Austin. Uh, there are maybe a couple of dozen people around here, but uh, how long have people been living here? It's, it's, it's longer than just today. <laughs> it is indeed. We're guessing 15,000 years, intermittently over that period of time, but for at least that long. Now, of course, there's uh, the question of how long anybody has been living in the Americas, uh, Homo sapiens, that is to say, and 15,000 years sounds like that's uh, kind of on the, uh, the long side. It is indeed, and that's one of the things that makes this site so exciting. The traditional cutoff in American archaeology has been about 13,500, and we feel like we're adding another 2,000 years to the early end of that because we have a Clovis occupation well represented in the archaeological layers here, and we have older artifacts underlying that, and we have luminescent dates on those older artifacts that suggest we're back at least six or eight hundred years, and those dates are near the top, in other words, the young end of our oldest cultural layer. Okay, so what would the inhabitants have looked like? How many would, would have been here? Would they be living in lean-tos out in the open? I mean, what would I have seen? I expect small temporary shelters, probably small groups most of the time, eight, ten people. And they weren't ever here permanently for very long periods of time. Come stay here a few weeks and move on. When you talk about Clovis artifacts, the kind of artifacts that are dated back to roughly 13,000 years, that accords with the general idea that the Americas were settled via the Bering Strait Passage, that, you know, Asians walked into the Americas during the last ice age when sea levels were down, they had a land bridge and so forth. Uh, that's where those people came from, presumably, right? Uh, not necessarily. 
the people who possessed Clovis technology, people or peoples, are employing a technology that resembles the technologies of Upper Paleolithic Western Europe far more closely than it resembles the technologies of Asia. And clearly, by 13,500 years ago, there probably wasn't a way to walk all the way from the steppes of northern Russia all the way into the interior of North America. Yes, you could walk across the Bering Land Bridge. It was pretty much ice-free. But then there were glaciers across, uh, ice sheet across western Canada. And that didn't open up. There wasn't a passageway through that ice cap probably until after Clovis people were already here. So there was no way to walk to the interior of North America. That leaves only the likelihood of people having come by boat. We have archaeological evidence that people were in Australia by 50,000 years ago. They had to have gotten there by watercraft. People in Japan were using obsidian from islands out in the Pacific that were never connected to mainland Asia. They had to have been going out by boat and getting that stone for tools because you just don't swim with rocks. Well, okay, but uh, what you're saying is that boat technology is demonstrably very old, but does that really change the picture very much? I mean, maybe they came across the land bridge, further progress southward was blocked by ice, but they just built simple boats and sort of coasted their way down the, uh, you know, the coastline of what's today Alaska and Canada and then the western United States and made their way to Texas because it's such a great place. (laughs) Well, uh, not today it's not, but that would be plausible, except that... When you go over on the eastern seaboard of the United States, we find a chipstone tool technology that very, very strongly resembles that of 17, 18,000-year-old European chipstone tool technology and very different from that of Asia. My view is they probably did both. I think people had learned to exploit the extremely rich resources of the northern Pacific and the northern Atlantic by 20, 30,000 years ago were very proficient at getting fish, sea mammals, birds, birds' eggs, this sort of thing, in the nearshore ocean environment. And they just simply expanded their ranges across the North Pacific and across the North Atlantic until they ultimately incorporated North America into into their realm. So do I understand you correctly, Mike? You're saying that uh, the Americas may have been populated from both directions, both from the east and the west. Archaeologists made the mistake a long time ago of assuming that people had to walk to get here, and that creates the option of only one route, and that's out of Siberia. If you get rid of that premise and just open it up to possibilities, yes, The archaeological record of the Northern Hemisphere, the archaeological record in North America in particular, the environmental setting to me suggests that people came by boat and it is as likely they came from Europe as from Asia. And you know, that's a long tradition in our history. One if by land, two if by sea. Well, I suspect that this is somewhat controversial, this point of view, because there is this sort of conventional wisdom, this established uh, idea that they all came via the Bering Strait because they could walk. Sure. 
that's a fact of life that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, we have, I think, a lot of evidence that needs to be considered. I'm not telling people they have to accept it. Let's consider it. Let's debate it. Let's get the best answer we can to the question of when the, the Americas were peopled, by whom, and how. And I don't have the answer, but I want us to consider all the possible answers and do the homework, find out what the, what the real answer is. If I were to ask you, what do you consider perhaps the number one piece of evidence that leads you to consider that some of the people that were living here came from Europe as opposed to Asia, what would that be? Well, to me, it's the stone tools that uh, have such a European flavor to their technology. There's a culture called Salutrian between about 17 and 21,000 years ago in uh, France and Spain who made stone tools in a very distinctive way. Clovis people made their stone tools in the same way, and we don't see that technology anywhere else on the face of the earth. That's pretty compelling. What about DNA evidence? It's uh, used uh, a lot these days. Any way to, to prove your case that way? Certainly not with the present evidence. The present evidence leans very, very heavily to a strong tie between the DNA of the Native Americans of today and of North America and of uh, Siberia. But in spite of the fact that a lot of DNA specialists feel like that's a pretty solid case, I'm skeptical. And I'm skeptical for several reasons. The main one being, until we have ancient DNA, going back 10,000, 12,000, 13,000 or more years, I don't think we're going to really know the true complexity of the peopling of the Americas. When you go to parties of uh, archaeologists, assuming that you do, do you find that people are avoiding you? Are they rushing up to talk to you? Do they consider you the, the modern equivalent of people that were advocating plate tectonics you know, 50 years ago, that it was uh, so much against the conventional wisdom? That's a beautiful analogy. I was studying geology when plate tectonics began to emerge. There were two professors in my geology department. The older one was not in favor of plate tectonics, and the younger one was. And we have exactly the same thing among archaeologists today. My severest critics are my age and older, for the most part, and the ones who are ready to engage in discussion and debate and, and maybe try to change my mind are mostly the younger ones. And I like that. What I don't like is people who just dismiss it out of hand and won't even talk about it. To me, that is a failing of scientists. Mike Collins, thanks so much for talking to me. Seth, I really enjoyed it, and you've got a good open mind, and I like that. Mike Collins is with the Archaeological Research Laboratory in Texas. Hey, Seth, can I have a sip of that water over there? Can you grab that? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's kind of hot in here. What, what are these here? These are pa paper mache planets? Yeah, good call, Molly. They are. I, I made those in, in grade school. There's everything in this storage locker. Here, here's some water. Thanks. You know, liquid water is less a rarity in the solar system than was once thought, which is kind of interesting for the hunt for life. Yes, wasn't it the Galileo spacecraft who went around the Jupiter system and uncovered the best evidence that some of the moons of Jupiter might have hidden oceans. Right, Europa, for certain, Europa. But planetary scientist Adam Schoman thinks there might be a lot more moons that have liquid water. Galileo spacecraft showed that several of them probably have liquid water in their interiors, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And several of the moons of Saturn, due to Cassini data, we think might now also have liquid water in their interiors. So yeah, it's, the numbers are adding up.
Well, when you say adding up, would you hazard a guess? How many moons, how many places in this solar system do you think there might be that might conceivably harbor a little bit of, you know, very tiny life? I would say that in terms of the liquid water, life being a separate issue, around the planets that we know of, like Jupiter and Saturn, probably, you know, it could be four, five, six, or seven that have liquid water. And interestingly, even um, objects like Pluto and some of the recently discovered other large icy objects, um, the so-called Kuiper Belt objects in the outer solar system, also might have oceans inside their interiors. Now, how do you know this? I mean, we haven't measured any of these oceans, right? We haven't seen them. So the data from Galileo actually has the Galileo spacecraft had a magnetometer, which is an instrument that can detect magnetic fields. And evidence from that magnetometer actually suggests that there are liquid water oceans on Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Well, explain how that works. What, what keeps the water liquid? I mean, it's pretty darn cold in the outer solar system. There's a heck of a lot of sunlight. You get out to Saturn, you get, what, 1% of the sunlight you get around here in Arizona. What's going to keep that water from freezing up really hard? It's a great question. I mean, basically, it's the same kind of effect that you have um, when you get freezing on lakes. You know, so you get ice that forms on the surface, and the ice naturally flows to the surface because it's less dense than the water. And ice is not very good at conducting. So you have this thick, solid layer, which may, in the case of these moons, be tens of miles thick. And that just is a very bad way of getting rid of heat. So if you have um, internal processes that cause melting, um, you know, it's just very hard to get rid of that heat. And so you can maintain the molten interior. So what you're saying is that some of these moons might be sort of warm on the inside, and then they got these really thick blankets, as it were, natural blankets on the outside. So there's, you know, the opportunity for liquid water to stay liquid down in there. That's exactly right. There are a couple of additional processes that can make it easier to have liquids. Uh, one is that you can potentially spike the, wa the water with antifreeze. So water itself, of course, freezes at temperatures we're used to here on Earth. But if there are salts or ammonia in the um, water, that can actually make the melting temperature drop by a huge amount, potentially um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit or more. So, because uh, it would be really cold water, but still liquid. Exactly right. Okay. Now, you talked about the possibility that there's some central heat source in these moons of Saturn, for example. What's going to keep them warm? They've been around for four and a half billion years. They've had plenty of time to cool off. That's a great question. Normally, we think that planets cool off more easily when they're small, simply because, you know, for a given patch of surface, there's not sort of as much material in the interior. For example, you know, if you heat up a pot of coffee, it cools off in an hour, whereas it takes planets billions of years to cool off. So you're totally right. We do expect the smaller bodies to cool off. And we think that um, what's happening is that there's a process called tidal heating, which is kind of like when you take a paper clip and you rub it back and forth really fast and it gets warm in the interior. We think that these moons are actually being being um, bent out of shape as they go around in their orbits, and there's frictional heating inside that keeps them warm and potentially molten. Okay, bent out of shape, they get a little hot-headed, they got a little source of energy down there, and liquid water. How deep would we have to go for one of these moons, uh, other than the ones that we've you know, been naming for years now, the three moons of Jupiter, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto? People have been talking about water there for a long time, but you're talking about some of these other moons. How far down would we have to drill to hit any of that liquid water, just you know, roughly? pretty deep. I mean, of course, again, as you pointed out earlier, we don't have evidence for sure that these bodies would have liquid water, but the models that we have run suggest that you might have to drill 100 miles or more to get to the liquid water. Okay, so it's going to be pretty dark down there, a little bit of warmth, enough to keep the water liquid, but that water might still be way below, you know, 32 degrees Fahrenheit because it's got these salts in it or who knows what other sort of antifreeze. Does this sound like the kind of place where you might have any life? It's hard to know. It's a very different environment than we're used to here on Earth. For example, you're not going to get any sunlight down there at all. So it's not going to be the same as an ice-covered lake where you get a little bit of sunlight into the water. 
Okay. Well, 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 what could keep life going? What? How do you make a living? What do you eat if you're down there? Well, it turns out on Earth, we know that on the bottom of the ocean, there are places where there are chemical sources of energy. So, for example, at deep sea vents, um, there's uh, materials come out that have a very different chemical composition than the ocean. And that gradients, in other words, differences spatially in the chemistry, drive reactions that life can use for a source of energy. One thing that strikes me here, Adam, is that, you know, when I was a kid, if you asked, could there be life nearby in our solar system, people would, would wave at Mars and they say, yeah, Mars, maybe Mars. And now we're talking about maybe dozens of worlds right here in our own backyard that at least have some potential for life. I mean, isn't this kind of a revolution in our thought? I think it is. You know, people talk in science here about the habitable zone, which is the idea of, you know, the range of distances from a star where a planet could support life. And in a sense, the idea of oceans on these moons, you know, overturns the idea of the habitable zone because it suggests that, okay, we have Earth in the inner part of the solar system, but there may be dozens or at least 10 bodies perhaps in the outer solar system that have life. So it seems like that would shift the habitable zone from the inner part of the solar system where Earth is to the outer part. And maybe this is good news because presumably there are a lot of a lot more cold worlds than there are warm ones like ours. That's right. And, uh, you know, for instance, we're detecting many Jupiter-like planets around other stars, and it could be that many of those also have moons which might have their own oceans and, again, potentially life. Adam Showman is a planetary scientist at the University of Arizona. Hey, Molly, here's the tube, the one that says forbidden planet. Oh, that's great. Let's open it up. All right. Try. Oh, there's nothing in here. Shoot. Well, try this tube over here. Okay. But, ooh, well, Seth, this, this one, this isn't forbidden planet. This one says maps of northern Idaho. Yeah, well, I can't imagine anything worse than being lost in northern Idaho. Is that why you have maps of northern Idaho in here? Yeah, well, wait a minute. Okay. Well, there's not going to be, I mean, ooh, hang on. Hey, it's a Forbidden Planet poster. Well, Look. that's right. Well, it is. You know, I had to hide it from my brother. That's probably why I put it in the map tube. Yeah, so there's the menacing robot with the legs like the Michelin tire guy, and he's carrying the woman. Yeah, and Francis. And you see at the bottom here, Walter Pigeon. And Leslie Nielsen. Was yeah. he in the film? Well, yeah, he had a small role. Oh, and there are the autographs. Okay, let's see if I can read it. Charlie Butterwinkle? Butterwinkle. What role did he play in the movie? Was he the robot? Mm, no, he was the projectionist at the Sherlington Theater in Arlington, Virginia. The projectionist? You got the autograph of the projectionist? Well, his brother was our milkman. See, Charlie was nice. He'd let me come up into the projection booth when he was making the change over at the end of every reel because, you know, you'd see these two spots on the screen. He yeah, was but, kind of inter- but, Seth, this autograph isn't r- worth anything. We can't sell Charlie Butterwinkle's autograph on eBay. Darn. Oh, hang on. There's something else. Hey, here's another poster. Hey, it's King Kong. Yeah, this one's signed, too. What is this, by the concession salesperson? No, that's Faye Ray's autograph. She came through town what? a couple of years after the film came out. I think she only signed a couple of the posters, actually. Ah, let's get out of here. I need to check something on eBay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Let's well, go. Hold it. Let, let me grab my bivalve collection because those ancient oysters might be worth something, you know? Shut the door. Don't forget to lock it. 